Amen. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, we are actually still in the season of Christmas. Maybe you were surprised that we sang some Christmas hymns. We just sang about the wise men. Um, we are in the actual Christmas tide, the season of Christmas, as we finish our series that we've been working on uh, since the onset of this Advent season. And it's a focus that we've had on desire. Um, the theme of this series has been to unpack this idea of mimetic desire. And that idea is that desire is actually learned from people and models around us. That most of our desires are not inherent. They're actually taught. They're learned. So we should be away, aware of the ways in which the desires that we have in our hearts and in our lives are being formed as we journey through life, especially around this Christmas season, and maybe even as you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, what you want for 2023 for you and yours, because desire is so front and central for us. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at various characters throughout the Advent narratives in Scripture. For those of you who've been tracking with us, you may remember us going through these um, and we're seeing what their desires are. We're trying to identify what are their desires, good or bad. And we're asking, what can we learn from their desires? Um, many of these characters have desires that we would rightly want to emulate. Most of them do, actually. Um, others uh, are examples of desires that we would want to avoid, like today. Um, because I got the job of looking at the desires of King Herod. Um, if you remember, we talked last week on Christmas Day about the Magi um, and how they avoided the presence of King Herod in Matthew chapter 2. This is the continuation of that narrative. So as you're able, would you please stand for the reading of the gospel today? I'm going to read it for you. And I'll invite you to follow along in, in your pew Bibles, your own Bibles, or to simply uh, uh, absorb these words. From Matthew 2, 13 through 23. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the Magi. And then what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are now dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was ruling Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And after being warned in a dream, he went to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. So let's talk this morning about King Herod, also known as King Herod the Great. Um, we really can't tell the story of Jesus' birth without knowing something about this historical figure, this man. Uh, last Saturday, uh, many of you were here on Christmas Eve. We dressed our kids up in, uh, in costumes. We did our annual live nativity so that we could tell the story of Jesus' birth. Um, now, despite some lobbying from people on staff over the years, we've never had a kid dress up as Herod and be part of the story. Um, I guess for me, I'm concerned that some sweet kid wouldn't really know what they were getting into. They would dress up as Herod and they would get booed uh, out of the sanctuary, which I think could be pretty scarring for a young soul. Um, but the reality is Herod is clearly the villain in this story. He's the villain in this story. And while we would love, I would love to just bypass this man uh, who's known for paranoia and violence and ruling in such an unhealthy way, we really can't bypass him. It might surprise you, um, but if you are ever asked, which is the one figure in the ancient world on whom we have more primary evidence from original sources than anyone else in the world? The answer is not Jesus. It's not St. Paul. It's not Caesar Augustus. It's not Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. It's actually Herod the Great. Um, why is this the case? Because there's a first century Jewish historian, his name is Josephus, very important historian, who gives us two whole book scrolls on the life of Herod the Great. That is more primary material on any ancient historical figure than, than anyone else. Um, I wish we had that much material on a whole lot of other historical figures other than Herod, but that's what we have on Herod. Um, Herod was called a king, King Herod the Great, um, but he's actually what we would call a puppet king, meaning um, that very often when uh, the, the, the Romans conquered a province, what they would do is they would look and see if there was a local leader who was doing a good enough job that they didn't have to reinvent the wheel, and they would just keep that person in place under their rule. So yes, he may have been called King Herod, but he was definitely being controlled by Rome. He didn't have autonomy and, and power in his administration to do whatever he wanted. He took over as the king of Judea in uh, 37 BC, and he remained in that role until his death in 4 BC. So 37 BC to 4 BC. Um, and as we think about Herod, he was remarkably successful in a lot of different ways. He deserves to be called Herod the Great if we're just talking about his accomplishments through much of his life. His CV is pretty stacked. Um, he is best known for expansive building projects. That's what he's known most for, most notably uh, rebuilding and refurbishing the Great Temple in Jerusalem. Uh, so when Jesus goes to the temple during his ministry, he's going to Herod's refurbished and renovated temple. Uh, he also single-handedly created a city that you can go and visit today. It's called Caesarea Maritima. Um, there was no good port city in the land of Israel at the time, and so he just decided, hey, with all the power and influence I have, I'm just going to build one. Uh, so he built a city. Um, it took him only 12 years to build uh, a world-class port city, and he built other cities like that too. He put his fingerprints all over the city of Jerusalem, 
He built a gorgeous palace for himself, uh, as well as a stadium and theaters. He also built seven great fortresses throughout the land of Israel, strongholds from which he could defend his administration. One of them, the most famous one, is down along the corner of the Dead Sea. It's called Masada. Um, he was a diplomatic genius. He kept, be, kept peace with Jerusalem and Rome. And so in that sense, it's okay for us to call him Herod the Great. He had many accomplishments. But as with such rulers who are so ambitious, these accomplishments were balanced with truly awful moral character. First of all, how do you think he was able to build these amazing cities and these amazing structures? It was by copiously taxing the people, by bringing people into an indentured servitude to build these things for him. And these, he did this all to a Jewish people who were already stretched financially and often starving, hungry. His home life was a complete mess as well. He had uh, 10 different wives that he married at different times. Um, he had numerous of his sons uh, killed by poison because he didn't want them to, he didn't think they were worthy of succeeding him, so he just eliminated them from his succession. The Jewish people saw him as a turncoat, um, a sympathizer with Rome, a traitor who was serving the rulers that they were desperately trying to get freedom from, and he was exactly that, and they loathed him for it. He knew he had no love among his own people, which caused intense paranoia. So towards the end of his reign, he turned increasingly violent. Uh, he had a plot to fill an entire stadium in Jerusalem with the Jewish elite of the city and to exterminate them so that when he died, at least someone would be, would be weeping when he died. That plot did not come to pass, thankfully, but the massacre of the infants in Bethlehem, which we just read about, does happen, according to Scripture. Horrific. Awful. For all of his accomplishments, he is known primarily through history for the blood that is on his hands. So knowing this about Herod, understanding this complex and often tragic figure, it isn't hard to understand what Herod's desire is, is it? I mean, we see it in, in these scriptures so clearly. Herod's deep desire is to be king. He wants to be king, and he wants to remain king. Now, if we're talking about mimetic desire, if we're looking at these characters and going, what are their desires, and, and how are we formed in a similar way, um, if we really believe that desires learn from others, I think that most of us are probably in the clear on this one. How many of you would be really excited about being a king or a queen of a nation? It's a pretty tough job, right? I think most people look at that and they go, wow, I, I don't even know how to be successful in doing that. That would be really, really hard thing. So I don't think most people desire this. But I actually think the desire that we see in Herod to be a king is a distinct temptation for most people and most of us who are here today. Not necessarily ruling a nation, but still being a king. I'm increasingly convinced that one of the most dangerous, cancerous, destructive forces in our world today is radical autonomy. The practice of placing ourselves, our needs, our desires, our plans at the very center of our lives. Another way of saying radical autonomy is being the king or queen of our own self-centered and self-curated and self-controlled kingdoms that we just as Herod didn't want to be subject to any other king, couldn't handle any other king being existence, and instead built and expanded and enhanced his own kingdom, 
So we are tempted, I think, to do the very same. Where do we see this? Where do we see this radical autonomy in our world today, this building of self-kingdoms in our society? I think one of the places that we see it that's pretty subversive that we don't think about very much is just in the elevation of the self. Think about the language we hear all the time of self-realization and self-esteem and self-actualization. None of those things are necessarily bad, but it is an elevation of the self. What we see so often in our society is an overwhelming sense of entitlement. I'm owed this and this and this, and if anything threatens what I'm owed, that threat needs to be dismissed. Radical autonomy leads to broken marriages and broken families, a lack of respect for other people, a lack of personal responsibility, a tendency towards tribalism, an intolerance of opposing viewpoints, and an inability to navigate conflict faithfully and healthfully. So do any of those sound familiar to you? as you navigate this world? I think so. We might not desire to be the king or queen of a nation, but maybe more insidiously, we are tempted to form our own little fiefdoms, our own little kingdoms under our sole leadership. And in this way, I think that Herod is actually um, pretty instructive for many of us, and we're not so far off from him in our hearts and in our minds. So with this in mind, let's contemplate that desire that desire. And I want to offer three just maxims, three truths that we learn from King Herod and his story, and that we can apply to our own tendency to live in that radical autonomy, our desire to be kings and queens. The first is this. If you're striving to live as your own king or queen, being your own king or queen will make you strive for approval from other people going to make you strive for approval from others. Uh, the story of King Herod the Great is really one where no matter what he did, he couldn't earn the love of anybody, <laughs> of his people, of the people he was working with, of, of the people who were over him. Rome basically just tolerated him, but they didn't really trust him. Uh, he's called a puppet king because Rome was animating every one of his actions. And despite his many accomplishments, he, he wasn't honored by Rome. He, they never sought to elevate him from his position on the outskirts of their vast empire. He was not loved by Rome. But he wasn't loved by the Jewish people either that he was ruling. Even after renovating and expanding the, their most holy temple in the most holy city of Jerusalem, something that you would think would, would help with his approval rating, he earned no love from them. All of his actions really when we think about it, his vast buildings and the things that he did, they were intended to win the favor of other people. Grand cities, mighty fortresses, lavish palaces, numerous wives and heirs. He wanted to wow people, to leave them in awe. All of his work was really only worth it if he gained the approval of the people around him. So if you are tempted to build a kingdom of your own, which I think most of us do, my guess is that you're striving for the approval of other people too. Whether it's building a certain kind of career or status or popularity or wardrobe or social media feed or, or a certain kind of personality or persona, so much of what we do is 
done for the approval of other people. We believe the lie that if our greatness is recognized by others rightly, then what we're going to experience is peace and deep contentment. But like Herod, the striving for approval is a fool's errand. We're never going to find contentment while trying to get the approval of others because others cannot provide us the deep contentment that we crave. The cost of our autonomy is so often the peace and contentment that God desires for us. Second thing from, from Herod's life, being your own king or queen will probably drive you crazy. Uh, in Herod's cycle of, of never enough, we see him become paranoid and even violent. Everything needs to be bigger and better and more advanced. He needs another city, another wife, another fortress, another son. Any threat to those things needs to be eliminated. Everywhere he turns, he sees someone who is trying to usurp his authority. No matter how well he rules, there are increasing threats, increasing discontentment, and increased paranoia. When we live in that model of radical autonomy that puts our needs at the center of our world, we eventually drive ourselves crazy too. There's always going to be more to strive for. There's always going to be others who are stealing our spotlight or our joy, who are taking our freedoms, who are kicking us off the throne that we desperately want to maintain. If we persist in living as our own kings and queens, it's a recipe for a decrease in mental and emotional health and an increase in irrational behavior. This leads me to my last and most important truth from King Herod, and it's this. Every king or queen has to choose how to respond to Jesus. King Herod hears whispers of a child being called a king in Bethlehem. And he makes a clear decision on how he's going to respond to this child. He chooses to be hostile to this child, Jesus, right? And ultimately, he, he takes measures to eliminate him, just as he's done with so many of his own sons who were clearly not worthy of being a king. As Frederick Buechner put it, Herod couldn't stand the reality that there was one in diapers far more powerful than he. So for you and me, I want you to know that Jesus will indeed confront our autonomy. He will come as a king into the kingdoms that we've created and nurtured and maintained and will demand a response from us. And we really have three options on how we're going to respond to Jesus the king. We can respond in hostility like Herod did. Refusing to allow Jesus as king in, in any way so that we can maintain our own kingdoms that we've created and cling to our precious autonomy. We can respond in apathy or indifference. Let Jesus be king over there while I sort of run my kingdom over here and never the two shall meet. In this way, and I see this a lot, I think we might even admire Jesus or respect Jesus, but it doesn't really change the fact that we're firmly seated on the thrones of our own lives. Or we can respond as the wise men did when they fell down on their knees 
costly gifts in their hands, and they worshipped Jesus. Let me ask you, in light of the ways in which you and me all seek to be our own rulers and create our own kingdoms, how do you respond to Jesus coming to you as king? Hostility? Apathy? Or worship? Hostility like Herod the Great, who seeks to remove Jesus from the equation because he's an active threat to the kingdom of ego. Apathy that traps you in a lukewarm existence that will never satisfy. Or worship like the wise men who experienced exceedingly great joy as they recognized through the eyes of faith that the baby Jesus would one day be crowned king of kings to fulfill every promise and, and prophecy and longing that they had. How does your heart respond to Jesus? Do you eliminate Jesus the king? Do you tolerate Jesus the king? Or do you worship Jesus the king? Friends, as we move from, from Advent and Christmas to another church season of Epiphany, no doubt many of you will be changing the, the seasons in your homes uh, this week as well. Some of you may be going home today to begin to take down Christmas decorations, right? The tree's going to come down. The lights are going to get packed away. We'll, we'll be on to our new year of 2023. But don't let this season end. There's a reason that we still have the, the, the Advent candles up here today. There's a reason that we're singing Christmas hymns today. Don't let this season end without hearing the invitation that Christmas so clearly offers to us. The king is born, and his kingdom is greater than the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms that we so carefully construct for ourselves. To know him and to love him and to serve him as king demands that we vacate our own kingdoms, that we surrender our own kingdoms, that we step off the thrones of our lives and run to Bethlehem to see him. This child king invites us to bow down and to worship him alone, to say, Jesus, you are my king. And because of your presence in this world and your presence in my life, there is no longer room for my rule. My ego. I am done striving for the approval of others because the only approval that I care about is from you. You're the only one who I care what they think, Lord Jesus. Herod instructs us on the dangers of desiring to be a king or a queen and how destructive that can be for us and for those around us. His story offers us an opportunity to ask the question, where is my heart today in relation 